Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by another special guest. So uh, Tim, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm uh, Tim Clark and I am brand director at PC Gamer. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Tim. So um, we've both got like a long history with you, so we're really excited to have you have you on here. Is it time to settle a bunch of scores in audio <laughs> form? <laughs> I don't want to litigate old PC Gamer top 100s and uh, Game of the Years, but, uh, you know, no, it's uh, it's all good. It's really nice to have you on here. How's things going, Tim? Yeah, good, thank you. I, I was uh, really excited to be asked. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. You're being very sort of formal. It's, it's not question time, just so we're kind of uh, clear about <laughs> the vibe. It's like uh, I was just saying off air, I feel like nervous about coming on because when, when you get invited onto this show, they bring you into their secret Discord and you see like all the previous guests and the kind of... Uh, you know, these famous alumni of uh, UK Games Media. And I was like, well, why wasn't I asked earlier? Quite helpful. <laughs> well, building up to you is the main event. That's like the uh, the logic there. Um, you know, it's sort of like you're like, you know, not the end boss, but like second to end boss. And then there'll be... All barrels have a bottom is what I'm hearing. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we really appreciate you coming on, Tim. Obviously, you've got a long history working on um, PlayStation Mags and um, At Future. And yeah, like you say, now on PC Gamer. I've been working on there for a long time. So I suppose to go back to the start, Tim, like um, before you got into games media, did you grow up playing games? Were they an important part of your life uh, growing up in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I was trying to think like what my, the very first kind of video game I encountered was. And I'm so old that I think it was one of the Atari like Pong type home things. I remember going to visit, I think, a cousin who had one and just being like staggered that that could exist in your house and furious that we didn't have one (laughs) and after that that kind of like triggered I guess like a campaign really to try and persuade my parents to uh, buy me a personal computer under the kind of um, disguise of this will be used for homework I mean who was using their piece like a computer for homework in those days anyway you didn't even have a printer I'm not sure (laughs) what you would have been doing and my parents like fairly wisely knew that I only wanted one um video games so they split the difference by not letting me have a c64 or a spectrum and getting me instead the amstrad cpc 6128 which i have a like super fond memories of i think i got the one with the built-in disk drive but then because the difference between like tape games and disc was like about a five i ended up getting most of the games on tape and then they would like habitually not load and stuff I remember like not being able to load Trantor the last Stormtrooper over and over again and just <laughs> spending whole nights just listening to it kind of doing the uh, doing the noise yeah I was I was obsessed with them really from from the get go and I used to go around to my buddy's house who had a BBC Micro and we would kind of like co-op Elite where one of us would fly on the keyboard and the other one would shoot like which is literally one button we considered that like a kind of a uh, a fleshed out co-op experience the other one I remember really playing on BBC was um, the game Exile which I've looked up a few times since and it's it was kind of like fated in the day and it was this kind of side on almost like proto Metroid affair where you were like a crashed space explorer of some sort on this alien planet do you, did you, do you remember this game? No, it's uh, it predates me. Like I'm 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 getting slightly older, but uh, I think you're about eight or nine years older than me, Tim. So um, we've got slightly different frames of reference on this stuff. Yeah. So it, well, anyway, it would have like semi-realistic physics, like you could pick up a beaker and try and get like space water into the beaker and carry it somewhere. And we like literally couldn't get out of the starting area because we were like <laughs> I don't know, probably like eight or nine years old at that time. And we would just spend hours and hours like pootling around this starting area of this game that was clearly. Uh, too complicated for our, our tiny 
tiny brains. So when you um, got, I guess, like student age, were you kind of what sort of what was around at that point? What were you kind of buying for yourself to sort of facilitate your uh, your interest in games? Yeah, when I was when I was at uni, I did the classic thing of dropping my student loan on a PS One at launch. <laughs> I remember playing like Battle Arena, Tishinden, um, Tekken, which was obviously the much better version of Battle Arena, Tishinden, <laughs> Wipeout. Like I was a fairly like, I guess I was like a fairly like, was I like a Sado at uni, probably a little bit. I definitely wasn't doing like a ton of work, so I would I would spend like an inordinate amount of time in my kind of halls playing PS One. I had like a SNES before with like the um, you remember you could get the thing that you stuck in the top that would let you play NTSC cartridges, and you would have to pay like literally seventy pounds for Street Fighter Turbo. I'd had like a Mega Drive as well. Right. I remember my dad. I remember my dad, who's a, a troubling man in a lot of ways, being furious with me because he found me playing Donald Duck's Quacktails. Oh yeah, I think that's what it was called. And he, at the time, he worked in TV. He was um, having a lot of troubled business relations with Disney, and he somehow like blamed me for that because I was playing Don- a Donald Duck <laughs> game and therefore funding the Disney machine. I mean, I was probably about fucking ten. Um, oh, I don't my know. Word. Sounds like Succession. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you met my father, you would uh, you would realise how on the nose you are with that. Um, but yeah, yeah. University was like actual soccer as well. I used to go around to my friend Simon's uh, room and we'd play actual soccer for all hours. I mean, I, I, like I've never been not playing video games. Basically, the other really seminal memory I remember having is going to the arcades at my grand's house down in Eastbourne. And there was I can't, I, I've looked it up since, but again, like I apologise because this is going to come a bit. My memory's not great, but there was. There was a space shooter which I think used like foot, like cut off footage from TV shows. It was like the illusion of you were playing a TV show. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, even like as a kid, I sort of knew it was being spoofed, like it wasn't quite real, but it looked so incredible that I kind of had a sense that even then, that like games were, were getting better all the time and that eventually this would be reality, which, you know, I guess it is or has yeah. been for a while. That promise of them has always been, I think, the lure. I also remember saying to my ex-girlfriend, we were on holiday once and she said, um, I, I, I was, I'm a terrible one for not committing to things and I hadn't like proposed or anything. I think that's what the conversation was really about. She said, well, what, what are your kind of really long-term ambitions? In life? What do you kind of hope to happen and stuff in you know, a decade's time or two decades' time? And I think I said something like, I'd really like to be around to see PS6 and how good that is. <laughs> and she was like fucking livid about it. Uh, you know, understandably so. Uh, it's what every every girl wants to hear. I think I did actually say something similar to my parents once, which is I just want to live to see Metal Gear Solid Four and know the ending of that series. So, uh, yeah, I completely <laughs> understand. Um, so, which games made you want to write about them for a living, Tim? It sounds like PS One was like a big part of your life. Did that change your gaming taste a little bit? Did you feel yourself quite aligned with how sort of PlayStation was going at the time? Not really. I never really kind of bought into that whole like, oh, games are hip now because like Sony's giving out like you know. LSD looking paper at Glastonbury or whatever with the, the you know PlayStation logo on it. I never really cared about that sort of stuff. I guess probably because I'd I'd grown up uh, playing a bunch of kind of old nerdy games that I already I already loved them right, so I didn't need Sony to convince me. And I don't think there was like one game that made me want to go into games media. I think like candidly, it was much more like I'd come out of university with a, you know an English and philosophy degree, had no no clue what I wanted to do, and figured if I could do something 
that was even like um, adjacent to something I loved, it, it would be a good idea. Although my fa- my old man had always warned me, like the more you enjoy your job, the less they're going to have to pay you to do it, and that has largely <laughs> rung true down the years. But you said that while throwing your copy of Ducktales into the fire, I assume. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, good stuff. So I was uh, stalking your LinkedIn page for your background, Tim. You've uh, had an interesting start to your career. You started at Trinity Mirror and Playboy um, in the UK. What was that like? And um, how did that progress into a games media career? So basically, I was in like trash cable TV, as you've successfully alluded to and discovered. When I was at, when I was at the Mirror Group, it was actually live TV, which again you may be too young for but it was like literally the worst television channel that has or ever will be it was a, a tv channel that had something called like the news bunny which was to fun up the news they had someone in a rabbit suit behind the newscaster like acting out the stories oh, right. multiple news bunnies got fired one because he was doing they were doing a story on like drugs and he like mind shooting up heroin this is like a man in a rabbit suit on a newscast right right another one got fired because they were doing a story literally about a terrorist attack and he mimed like a kalashnikov being fired so like this was the channel when i started there i was like a researcher on like i think it was on like 10 grand when i started and uh, i was on a on a show called the vinyl frontier which was about um it was about like finding you know record memorabilia and stuff and what they had me doing was literally they put a phone book in front of me and i would just call people up and say like have you got any old records there's going to be like a record fair would you mind bringing your old records to it i mean you can imagine the response to being phoned and asked that question right one poor woman like i phoned up there was this huge long pause and she said my husband died yesterday and you're asking me about the beatles and i was like i'm so sorry like put the phone down and then like at that point there was me and another another girl who these kind of like you know just out of college researchers we like refused to do any more cold calling and the woman it was like a canadian lady who ran the show she was very angry with us and she said i'll do it and i'll get you like 10 guests by the end of the day she didn't get a single one so then the vinyl frontier had to kind of switch switch tack a bit so i hated that uh, and i quite quickly got moved off onto the late night desk and late night at live tv was basically like a bunch of kind of red shoes diaries type stuff and they also had like a magazine type show called the sex show hosted by a very funny woman from newcastle where they would have on like sex therapists and stuff just with a view to being able to justify they would also have on exotic dancers once a night right so i was doing that for quite some time by the end i was i'd moved into the promos department which is basically like cutting adverts which which i really enjoyed um but then we literally all got made redundant just overnight. Just came in one day and everyone was fired. Did they have the news bunny behind the person telling you you were being made redundant? <laughs> miming you picking up a box off your desk? I remember coming in and I was late and someone said, you know, check your email. I'd come out of university, by the way, not even knowing how to use a computer. Someone had to show me how email worked. Someone said, check your email. And there was this thing sort of basically saying, yeah, you're all, you're all out. And me being, and Samuel maybe relate to this, tried to like continue finishing the project I was on. And the guy next to me was like, what are you doing? Like, just come downstairs and have a sandwich with the rest of us. Like, you idiot. Um, so yeah, after that, I was out of work for like about six months, I guess. And I really listlessly applied for new stuff because I'd got like a bit of a payout, but was still living at home. And I would do the thing of like, I would send off one job application and then wait for that, the result of that one to come back rather than sending a lot out, which is obviously the strategy. Um, and eventually I yeah, got this job. I was called the executive of on-air promotion and something else at Playboy TV. And I was working out of Hayes and Harlington, which is right by Slough. And it's like, the, it's like just the biggest shit heap. And it was the most depressing job. I was writing like continuities mostly because everything was like, 
basically it was all stuff from America that you would just kind of schedule and, and play out. Mm. And I would have to write the kind of continuities in between for like voiceover people to read out. And my thesaurus for dirty words was like exhausted after like <laughs> 10 days. And I was just kind of <laughs> recycled all these adjectives. Um, but yeah, I was commuting like two and a half hours each way and like just going to the pub on a Friday and just collapsing. So I only did that for like six months. So then uh, so then I worked for a company called The Network of the World and they did have a gaming, so this is kind of where we get to gaming. They had like, it was like, I guess the first or second dot com boom, I forget, but it was like, they had an enormous amount of money from Hong Kong to the tune of like, there was like maybe 200, 300 journalists working in this um, building in Chiswick. They had so much money that their science channel had its own science vessel boat that would sail up to the Antarctic to try and film whales birthing. <laughs> there, was this, there was this big pod of whales that I guess like other other um, TV documentaries and stuff were trying to film too. And ours was the only boat that missed it. We were like kind of a mile to the south when we should have been to the north. But that was like the level of like money that was being you know pissed up the wall so we all knew it wasn't going to last from like day one we were being paid pretty well even by london standards everyone joked that like the building was kept warm just by burning 50 pound notes in the basement so there was this kind of very strange like fatalistic attitude so like you had to pretend that it was a real company but everyone knew it wasn't really um and on my like first day there they were like Oh, the guy who's running because I joined the games channel, right? Because I, you know, wanted to write. I wanted to do. I, I thought I was coming to do TV stuff about games, basically, because I was a TV guy at that point. And on the first day there, a guy said to me, "Oh, the dude who was running the website because it had a website has quit. You can write. You did English. Do you want to? Do you want to just run the website for a bit and see how that goes?" And I loved it, and I, I kind of built a little team there of um, five or six people. Like, no one was reading it, obviously. The site was um, built on a platform. This was, like, pre-broadband. It was kind of theoretically at the dawn of broadband. And the site had, as you landed on it, like a splash page that said, if you do not have broadband, don't bother coming in. Like, don't (laughs) bother visiting our website. And it wasn't even because our website had anything good on it, like, like, you know, flashy video or anything. It's just they'd got this sense that we were going to be a broadband portal for these various special interests. But yeah, like I think I, I actually, strangely enough, learned quite a bit there about managing writers and you know doing news. And funnily enough, I remember being visited by I think like James Binns and whoever was running PCG at the time. Who was and Binsy was trying to basically like leech off some of this company's money, as far as I could tell. And me thinking, <laughs> oh man, future, they're the, yeah, they're the big boys. Like that, that's like real games journalism. I wish I could kind of get involved with them. I was like a big edge guy as well. Like I'd read edge. Um, pretty much mm. since it started like religiously it was used to get really excited about going to Smiths and picking up Edge mm. but yeah surprise everyone got made redundant there as well <laughs> they actually they actually kept they tried to strip it down just to the gaming stuff because that was the thing that was kind of working best and I kind of like slightly out of career cowardice stayed on to relaunch it and do a redesign rather than take the money and run but at, just as I relaunched it, I took the job at Future. So that job is was uh, you were an online editor for the official PlayStation Magazine website. Is that right? Yeah, it was it was it was odd because it was um, I was essentially like half funded by Sony, like my salary. So I like half I kind of like worked for Future, but I kind of like had one foot in Sony as well because the stories we were writing would be published to PlayStation.com, the official site, mm-hmm. and it was part of the kind of the licensing. So I kind of was, and, and 
IPM had never had any kind of web presence at all. So I was kind of like a little one-man band and I would just sit there and write, you know, three or four news stories a day, use their incredibly rough CMS back in those days. And then a chap at Sony would run his eyes over them and a chap at Future would run his eyes over them and then I would publish them. And it was a really exciting time. Like that was when I guess OPM would have... It, it, it was weird actually because I think OPM at the time was probably selling mid a hundred and something thousand copies a month like maybe like 150 160 and you're like when you do the maths of it costs probably like a, around a five of them with a demo disc like the money's insane right but yeah this is something i've always said to people at future we were still paid the exact same amount of money we were still treated the exact same it's like no level nice. of success got us paid better and also <laughs> because because the original playstation mag had gone north of two hundred thousand, it was seen as a huge failure so the atmosphere was actually really bad i remember like Sam, who was there at the time, different Sam, was under like massive, massive pressure for kind of just not delivering. It was regarded as, it was so short-sighted. It was regarded as, you know, he'd kind of like, you know, missed a trick or wasn't kind of, wasn't kind of doing something that he should be doing. So there was this, this strange sort of mood. Another thing that stood out for me at that time was that I felt like the magazine was too dry and too staid and too kind of like, it was too kind of content to be like the official thing. It was a bit kind of smug and it was just dry. I remember like being a little bit jealous of like Dan and Joel on PSN who were kind of having this much more kind of like renegade time and mm. I remember like Graham Dalzell who was our art editor at the time saying like you know you know the mag is better than us and I was like what, what do you mean he's like it's, it's better he says it's better written it's kind of more fun and I it, that really like stung me because I was like well why aren't we doing something about it right why aren't we kind of changing OPM mm. so I found it quite frustrating at first because I was like you know I didn't have any real power I was there just really to kind of dip a toe into the the water of online for OPM I mean by the way like there were great people on OPM at that time Paul Fitzpatrick mm. was a fantastic writer Mike Goldsmith who hired me I absolutely loved but he Mike really liked I think the kind of this the more stylish cool side of Sony which um, right. I, I wasn't as into it's interesting you say that and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this when you you know worked more heavily on the, on the mag side of things but I always and I'm not just saying this because you're here Tim I always thought of the three official mags, OPM was the one which had a bit of like pizzazz and comedy and humour and, you know, still kind of an official product, but like definitely had a lot more of its writer's personality in it. I would say, OP- but I'm talking about like OPM two forwards here. So yeah. something, I, something I associate with you, I would say. I think it did. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I'm, I, I, was happily building up to obviously it was better under me um, <laughs> <laughs> I think like it went through like real eras right so there was that kind of very stiff but kind of cool very brand safe version and then it swung massively in another direction under like Stephen Pierce and Rich Keith and it was kind of the lads mag era and I think you know we would all agree and I you know I don't wash my hands of this it went a bit too far what Stephen did do though was like force us to try and be creative on every page he like he would not accept us handing in a preview that was just a preview. You had to you had to think of an angle with either how visually it was presented or what the writing was doing. Mm. And he, Stephen was a fan. He was actually a tough boss to work for, but like he is is and was a fantastic writer. So that kind of pushed us. And I think we're going to come to it later. But yeah, and when we, when we relaunched in the PS3 era as well, I think like that was when I mean that was when I was in control, and I think we did something quite different. And um, yeah proud of that era for sure so it's 2002 you um you came in to um work on official playstation 2 magazine so 
this is like firmly the PS2's heyday. Um, editorially, what sort of opportunities were you getting around then? What do you remember about like the, the sort of what was coming the OPM's way at the time? Do you mean in terms of like what we were being offered? Yeah, what you're being offered, or what was uh, what you just kind of remember, I guess, from like your your first couple of years being there during that kind of like red hot PS2 time of like Vice City and yeah. pairs and stuff popping off, you know. I mean, like, I think like as Dan said, I remember it being like an incredibly competitive era. I mean, we were all cutting each other's throats the whole time to try and secure <laughs> covers, right? Like getting the first look at Vice City or something, or being the first one to put it on the cover was just like. It was just kind of guaranteed gangbusters sales and excitement. I mean, I remember there being a ton of travel, right? We would kind of like, people were just kind of cycling in and out, going to like America to see things or Europe and very occasionally Japan as well. So it was like a, a young person who hadn't done a lot of that. That was like incredible. Um, I'd, I'd done E3 before going to Future, so I'd had a bit of a taste of that. I mean, my, my first ever E3 was an absolute disaster i don't know if you want me to tell you oh yeah 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 of course of course <laughs> so I'd, I'd gone over there with network of the world i had no idea what i was doing i actually met tony mott for the first time and was kind of a little bit starstruck by him tony walking around with his new balance and his rucksack on both shoulders Abs- absolutely iconic if you've ever met tony. Um, and i'd got like screenshots we'd, we'd seen the toby guard game Galleon was it called? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I'd seen it, and like I knew Edge was into it, so I was like, I'm going to be into it as well. And um, <laughs> I'd got this kind of like probably CD with screenshots on it. And I took it back to the hotel room, and I was like, oh shit, I got to get these screenshots back to Britain to kind of get someone there to post them for me because I think the CMS didn't even work abroad. And I ended up like sending them down like the hotel phone modem which I had to plug into the lamp the lamp had like the kind of uh, <laughs> ethernet cable over and it took all night to send like six screenshots back right of like a couple of meg each and when it came check it, when it came time to check out the bill for that one phone call for like six screenshots was like $300 or something and I was like I like nearly vomited on the desk immediately um, and had to, had to and I think I said to my boss, I was like, you know, I've, I've racked up this expense. And he was like, well, you know, it must have been for a really big story. And I was like, yeah, it was uh, six six new screenshots of Toby Guard's Galleon. I think <laughs> probably three people read that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, opportunities. I don't remember. I still remember, like, I think because there were so many mags around, it wasn't like people were, like, beating a path to our door necessarily. I mean, like, the, the, the official cover was prestigious for sure. I mean, maybe because I was, like, slightly divorced from those conversations that were happening at the time I was just kind of plugging away online but I don't remember it being like I don't remember it being easier put it that way do you know what I mean I feel like mm. it, I feel like mags were always hard and you that seems absurd because you look at the team sizes back then I mean we had two we had a production editor and a sub do you know what I mean we had two art editors yeah. nowadays mags are made by like a person and like yeah it's, right you know <laughs> if you get Robin Valentine on I'm sure he'll curse my name um, <laughs> But you kind of convince yourself back in the day, like, well, we simply couldn't do this with any less, right? We could not, like, it would be ridiculous to try. Right. Um, but, you know, like, having, having teams like that afforded you to do some really cool work as well, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, were there any PS2 games you remember being particularly uh, significant during your, your time on the, um, uh, I guess, on the website and then moving on to the um, the magazine itself? Like, what do you remember from the PS2 days that seemed like a, a huge deal to you on the team at the time? The, ga- the game that sticks out the most to me is uh, Time Splitters 2, because I think that was one of the first cover reviews, and maybe it was the first cover review I wrote, and we were obsessed with Time Splitters uh, on the team, because it was that kind of 
split screen co-op or whatever right that mm. they just like each mag team would tend to like have a game right and time splitters was ours and you come up with all this kind of stupid verbiage like names for things in the game like we called the the P90 assault rifle the butter knife right because it just kind of would, would go through you and we had like we would only play like the Chinese map and we'd go like who's on for some chinois at lunch like <laughs> the French word for Chinese for like no fucking reason do you know what I mean like you just you'd develop these kind of like these like in jokes in this language like I remember when we were playing Pez it was similar like I remember we all called like Zinedine Zidane the bear for some reason because he was like this huge presence in midfield and I used to because it was all these people who just loved words right and language and like kind of riffing off each other the game that probably like the game that stands out to me most from PS2 personally and this will make me seem like a really wanky suit um, but was Killer Seven like I was obsessed with Killer Seven, partly because I was probably like listening to like I used to like listening to kind of or still do sort of difficult music and being into the cool thing right and the stylish thing. Mm. But I was like really, um, I was really obsessed with that game, and I still kind of count its ending as like my favourite uh, video game ending because it kind of actually had this real emotional clout and um, it resolved in a way that I think. I didn't expect it to but had been like foreshadowed really well throughout considering how like largely bonkers the game is I, I don't I, think it's I don't think it's either your sort of game Maybe I, th- Matthew. I think Matthew Matthew you must have played this right yeah I must admit like I, I like the kind of cruder dumber pseudo stuff yeah you know when it was all just sort of you know erection jokes so that's <laughs> that's more my speed <laughs> Yeah, I've not played it, truthfully, Tim. But I think I ended up with your copy of it after you gave me your GameCube before you moved to America. That GameCube holds a very dear place in my heart. I remember having to drive up to Hammersmith, I think, when I was um, maybe living back there, and my other half at the time had got it for me as a Christmas present. It has the Switch on the back, right, so you can play um, NTSC yeah. stuff. Mm, and right. I got given it for Christmas, and I got given it with, I guess, Rogue Squadron, and I can't even remember what the other games were, but on Christmas Day it didn't work. Uh, it just wouldn't boot and I was like so upset and in my kind of way I got frustrated and just like I think I just jammed the laser with my finger and it turned out it was stuck maybe I could see that it was sticking or something but that that fixed it and it booted and it still remains like one of my most uh, beloved machines the GameCube Soul Calibur on the GameCube what a game yeah some of your games are actually imported from Japan as well so I I assumed you were a big GameCube guy as well as being a PS2 guy at the time? Like, I've always had everything, right? Like, I, I'm trying to think if there's any machines I've skipped. Like, only things like the PC Engine and stuff I didn't have the money for at the time. But I've always had, yeah, all the consoles. It, funnily enough, like, now is the time I've played least console stuff at all, just because I don't feel the need to with the PC being as strong as it is and wanting to kind of, you know, yeah. be, a good, be a good PC soldier. Yeah, very old brand for you, for sure. I was going to ask, were you a big Kojima head? Because I know it was like super important to Dan Dawkins during this time. And I, I, I remember really good Metal Gear coverage in Official PlayStation, where I just I remember this preview where I think the gimmick was like codec conversations between I want to say you and Paul. Paul Fitzpatrick, yeah. Paul, Paul was um, Paul was really good on the deep Metal Gear lore. I was absolutely like a, a Kojima head, yeah, for sure. And again, like had read. I remember reading the preview for the OG uh, Metal Gear, or the one that was on PlayStation anyway, the first one. I know mm. it was once before, but let me just quickly tell you an anecdote about Paul Fitzpatrick. <laughs> Paul, who is like a great um, 
a great but long-suffering <laughs> member of the IPM team, at one point for a next month page, I think it was for the next month page, or it was like an and finally type page or like a back page, we, it was for Silent Hill, <laughs> and we covered Paul... Have you done this before on the back no, page? No, but I, I, I know what you're going to say, because I can remember the image. <laughs> yeah, so we decide... We'd all, for the back page, we'd always do kind of like a photographic treatment that kind of like summed up the game. So for Splinter Cell, there'd be one of us like, you know, trying to start balancing the, the top bit of a corridor, right, with goggles on. For Silent Hill, we wanted to make Paul into like a meat monster. So we covered him in like, I don't know, like 10 packs of fucking bacon. He was like in pants. <laughs> Covered in bacon, we sprinkled like mints on his head. Um, George Waltler, who was the then news editor, made like a blood, a fake blood substitute out of like corn syrup. George had like read up how to make fake blood because he was into horror movies and like just drenched Paul in this like corn syrup mixture and bacon and mints. And then we photographed him under lights at the future studio. So the meat was like starting to like part cook. <laughs> the smell <laughs> was just like horrendous. But yeah, anyway, Paul Paul was the Metal Gear guy. Um, I went to I went to Japan to do. I think it was for Metal Gear. It would have been for Metal Gear Four. And the reason I know this is because so we did the interview um, with Kojima. Um, it had gone really well, and Kojima says through his translator, you know, thanks for coming. I will join you later this evening when when you're you know out in Tokyo. So we'd gone out to this, and I kind of was like, well, he's saying that to be polite. He probably won't actually uh, show up and didn't really have my hopes up. And I bought Kojima as well. This I bought. It, I knew he was into like um, Britpop and kind of British rock. And I bought him like as a gift, like a, I think it was like Star Sailor or Embrace or one of those kind of like slightly complaint rock British bands um, right. to enjoy, <laughs> and which he seemed pleased with. So anyways, we go out for a night in the town in Tokyo get pretty drunk we end up at a karaoke bar and just after midnight like Kojima turns up with like one of his guys um, and I'm pretty like I'm honestly pretty half cut and I say like I would love to sing Mr. Kojima a song as you know a tribute you know my gift to him and they're like oh I can already see like the PR for Konami going I'm not sure this is a good idea so I stand up and I said like you know in honour of Metal Gear Solid 3 which had like a real Bond theme to it I would like to sing Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better so I like the the, the lady from uh, Konami finds the song on the machine pops it on and immediately I'm in trouble, right? Like big, big trouble. Because I can normally sing quite high, but for some reason, like immediately, like my pitch is off. And the Japanese karaoke machine has like a, a knob you can twiddle that will change the pitch. So the lady from Konami, like immediately sensing I'm in trouble, starts moving the pitch up and down. So now I'm kind of trying to chase that as it goes back and forth. And Kojima's like looking at me just like in like, at first it's like horror, but then he's like fully laughing at me, just going, this like this idiot. And a couple of people like stood up and I'm going, nobody does it better, makes me feel sad for the rest. And a couple of people like join in and put their arms around me and they're trying to help me. That's how bad it is. Um, but yeah, that was, um, that was definitely like one of the, the best trips I, I, I went on. And I remember like Kojima actually saying like at the time, he, it was one of the, it stuck in my mind he said he wished he could put his games out on PC and that they developed um, you know they would develop on PC and then kind of convert it, it over and he had a he had a kind of lot of love for the for the platform yeah which obviously you know significant later on when uh, MGS5 made the leap and then Death Stranding um, Death Stranding seemed to be like weirdly a great fit for PC in terms of like 
um you know it was just odd enough to be perfect for that platform so uh yeah but congratulations tim on um telling an anecdote that's gone right to the top of the pile of those told on the podcast <laughs> uh... does, does does everyone have a kajima anecdote <laughs> i think like uh, more people than you'd think for sure like i think like maybe we had three so far between me dan and you so um okay, okay. Yeah. i haven't got one yeah i've never met the man i've got one about you matthew I was thinking about like trips we've been on and I think it was an E3 we were going to and we were sat next together on the plane, you and I. Oh yeah. And I'd brought like, I don't know, a laptop or it was probably an iPad actually. And I started to watch the um, the erotic thriller Chloe with <laughs> yeah. Amanda Seyfried and Julianne Moore <laughs> and you looked absolutely horrified like like just like what are you doing why is there why are you like openly have got like nudity happening within a, a meter radius of me yeah i do remember that i think that's the first time we like ever properly like chatted outside of work <laughs> and you're like what the fuck is happening here well, it's like who's this grotty man <laughs> it's like i saw someone watching um a factory girl on a play once and like it may have been a coincidence, but they just happened to be on a scene where like Sienna Miller was topless um, in like a sex scene. Um, when I like um, sort of woke up and glanced over a screen, and I just thought, oh god, just of all the films to watch, you know, just put like fucking Happy Feet two on or something, you know. I'm but, still uh, not sure what the etiquette is really because you have like a, on Virgin you can watch some like incredibly violent films and stuff, and then you look across the island, there'll be like a fucking eight year old kid smiling at you, and you'll be like, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I actually was on a flight pre just pre pandemic cross country in the US and I got sat next to this old this old boy and on his iPad all he watched was dentistry gone wrong videos <laughs> like horrendous kind of like rotting teeth being drilled like as a playlist like multiple of them and then he was watching like street justice videos of like people getting in altercations and attacked and then his other thing was kids who've been caught smoking being made to smoke loads of cigarettes like just complete psychopath material right and i'm like fucking hell man i can't be sat next to this guy for like four hours but then midway through the flight i realized i hadn't brought my charger and he could see that i was kind of like looking to plug something in. he goes did you want to borrow my charger and i was like oh maybe this guy's fine you gotta smoke this entire box of cigarettes if you want it <laughs> yeah yeah or else i'm gonna drill your teeth <laughs> oh amazing so, uh, Tim, how do you end up like game onto the mag side? So you um, you seem to progress pretty quickly on official uh, PS2 mag. So, um, how did you get off the website into the uh, into the mag side, and how did you kind of ascend from there? There was um, a dep editor um, before me had left because I think he'd he'd been due to get married, and then his fiancée had left him, and he'd gone completely AWOL, just not coming to work for two weeks, and then <laughs> at the end of which she just sort of went, like, "I'm quitting, lads." So that created, that created a vacancy and I kind of won a runoff between me and George Walter. And Future did a classic thing of like going, well, we'll make you dep for a bit and then if we think you're doing well, we'll kind of make it official. And I, I, I like to think I kind of generally know my own value. And I said, how about you just pay me for it now? And if I don't do it well, you can put me back to the other role I was doing. Like, see if that works. Because <laughs> um, it always felt like they were trying to kind of get a freebie. But being dep as I'm sure both of you remember, basically amounts to like writing still 30 pages a month, making most of the decisions. And um, it, it was like the most exhausting job I'd ever had. But but good. Like I learned, I think, a lot under Rich Keith. Stephen was still there for most of it, but left. But yeah, it was kind of, you just kind of, it was that thing of 
you would move up into a chair as people vacate. And I guess maybe there was a bit more movement back in those days. So you became editor uh, just as the PS3 landed and the magazine had a relaunch. Um, that was um, actually quite a long period of time because I think the PS3 was revealed in 2005 and then it didn't launch in Europe till um, uh, uh, March 2007. So um, what was that period like for you and um, when, when you were kind of like redoing the magazine essentially? It was really one of my favourite times. It was the first time I'd kind of really been involved in that creative process of like making something from scratch and, and kind of having a blank canvas. And I was also lucky enough to work under... Mark Donald, who was like, like in many ways, like a very strange man, but I also think pretty brilliant as an editor um, and taught me a ton. We had like two amazing art leads in Mark Wynn and Dylan Shannon. And we were able to spend just, I think because you're right, it was delayed in Europe, wasn't it? I think, Mm. which bought us a bunch of time. And it was a real kind of prestige relaunch. We kind of, we went, we kind of swung back from the kind of the, the vibe on OPS2 had got kind of younger and younger as the audience did and kind of more poppy and cartoony and we kind of swung back to being a bit more prestige like the first issue launched in a box as I recall like an actual box yeah, <laughs> yeah it was re- and it was really it was like a fake box as well and we didn't make that many I think that was issue zero which was one of these kind of pretentious things they like to do around launches <laughs> um, and it just had the hardware on the cover um, really beautifully shot and <clears throat> yeah the fact we were able to the delay bought us like another kind of two or three months or whatever you could you could just spend an unbelievable amount of time like finessing these stories I think I maybe did a feature on I want to say it was Burnout Paradise it was certainly one of the burnouts I think the headline I wrote for it was I wanted to destroy something beautiful and we'd got this amazing kind of render we'd done of a car kind of like looking as if it was slow motion crumpling but like every feature had this just so much time and love poured into it in a way that you never really get the chance to do on a magazine right because Mm. you know you've got three weeks to make it or whatever my favorite things when you do a magazine redesign is how you you come up with all these ideas for like regulars which are easy to do when you've got like three months on that redesign (laughs) issue and then how quickly they die when the mag's like real (laughs) i remember i feel like that's a backhanded way of me talking about like because i did uh we did the um nintendo game uh, redesign together i'm sure some of the some of the sheets i handed over this is a cool redesign you were like Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, <laughs> um, Matthew, is that you alluding to Barrel Watch? Um, the sort oh, of ba- no, ba- uh, ba- Barrel Watch, that was official Xbox. Barrel Watch lasted for ages, 20, 30 issues or something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, no, it's more like, like when we did, when we did the, o, the OXM redesign, you know, we were going to have this big interview every month with, like, original photography of our interview subjects, and we had, like, the first, like, three lined up and could get a photographer out, and it worked brilliantly. But soon after that, it began getting a little bit like, well, we've got the interview, but we haven't got the photography, and we started running, like, worse and worse photography, and we kind of undermined the idea a bit, and it just, just things like that, really. So what did you make of the PS3 in the run-up to launch, Tim? Because there was a lot of kind of like nonsense surrounding it. All of the um, mm. Ken Kutaragi, get a second job, GTHD stuff. Like I remember it, the, the banana controller, a lot of kind of drama. Um, how did you feel about the PS3 as someone who was working on a, a mag dedicated to it? My strongest recollection is of being with Dawkins at E3. And I think it was at the one maybe where they did the giant crab. Was that pre-PS3? Yeah. Giant crab? That's right. Yeah. I remember because we would always try and sit together to kind of like get an instant reaction and I remember as that was kind of playing out we literally held hands <laughs> just gently held hands and we're like this is bad isn't it and we're like yeah I think it's really bad <laughs> um, 
but also like do you know what like I don't know if people on other magazines or other official mags felt the same way about it I didn't really care like you knew there would be games you knew that Sony wasn't going to sell so few Playstations that it would go bust or like all the games would be terrible so I never kind of really it, like in some ways you're kind of tied to the mast you're, you, you know you're slightly hostage to the fortune of whichever um, platform you happen to be writing about but also like when they were up it didn't really benefit me that much so when they were down it, I felt like it didn't really fuck me up that much either right because if the mag sold less like Future largely I felt like understood the market conditions and knew that alright Xbox is winning in this cycle or whatever and the Xbox mag's doing great so you know good news mm. um, I, I never took it personally I guess is what I'm saying I, I kind of felt like I was a Playstation guy in that era even though like uh, as we discussed like I would play everything like I would always Mm. have all the machines that that memory of sitting with dan dawkins has similar energy to um when they were doing the wii u announcement e3 do you remember we watched that weird pre-conference in that internet cafe yeah 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 yeah. because we were out there to yeah because i think by that point you were probably yeah you were off apn then you were more general overseer and um jack of all trades yeah (laughs) you were you were there on the nintendo stuff as well and yeah, we remember sitting through this quite strange. It was Iwata's like Miiverse introduction, and you have a similar kind of like, well, you know, this this is what we got to work with. You know, this is the thing, and we're an official Nintendo mag, so I guess it'll I guess it'll be this from now on. I, I always felt you enjoyed that that kind of underdog vibe, anyway, Matthew. Like, yeah, <laughs> you. I felt like it never really got you. I think it got you down when you were like. There's literally no games to talk about for three months. How the fuck are we going to make a yeah, magazine? Uh, I think that was rough. The, the stretch where we did like three Mario Kart covers in a row. <laughs> that was that was tough. I remember talking to you about covers and going, is there any other Mario art? And you're like, we have literally used all the Mario art. There is no more <laughs> Mario art. Stop asking. Is there time for me to quickly say my favourite Nintendo anecdote from oh, E3? Of course, yeah, of course. So in the same one, it must have been the same one as Toby Guard's Galleon. It was the one where they showed um, a very brief bit of Metroid, I think, coming to GameCube. Um, Like a very quick um, snatch of it. And I'm sure I've told you both this anecdote before, but hopefully I'm sure it'll be new for most of the listeners. So they did like a little Q&A at the end with Miyamoto, I think, at the end of the conference, because the conferences were different in those days. There was a guy who stood up to ask a question who was from Nintendojo. Nintendo, how do you say it? Nintendo? Yeah, Nintendojo, yeah. Nintendojo, yeah. And he had on, they all had on like, I think like um, American football shirts with Nintendojo and then their name written on the back. And they also had like head scarves on, like, um, like Ralph Macchio and a karate kid. And that's how like full weed they were. And this guy, he goes, uh, if it pleases Mr. Miyamoto, I'd like to ask my question in Japanese because I've been learning, right? He's like, he's all in on Weeb. And he, so he proceeds to ask his question. And then there's just this like confused look on the stage and the translator's like kind of cocking her head and she's like she hasn't got a clue what he said like the, the Miyamoto doesn't know for sure and gradually like this guy's like he's, he tries to repeat it right and it's still not sinking in and some guy in the audience just goes sayonara buddy <laughs> and the whole place just like explodes in laughter as this guy's life ends basically <laughs> Oh, oh, that's so good. 
Oh, amazing. <laughs> I've seen that later on that night, uh, Tim, you had to send like one Metroid screenshot down the phone line and that cost <laughs> another 400 quid or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. No, that's good. Um, so uh, OPM, I thought, was a bit ahead of its time as sort of like mags went. I-, I was on play at the time and I thought PSN were quite similar to us. We were like very much more in the PS2 sort of laddie vein um, and I thought OPM was a lot classier under your watch um, so what sort of um, decisions uh, shaped the thinking on that Mac because you didn't have a traditional news section if I recall you had a kind of feature section at the start um, like a top 10 and that was always kind of like yeah. beautiful looking um, and I thought the Mac generally was just, just had a high level of um, thought put into it so kind of what what did you kind of bring to that process? I was a huge thief is the thing and but I didn't I kind of stole from everywhere, and so when we were when we were doing both redesigns and launches, um, myself and whoever I was working with uh, on art, which is often Graham Dalzell, but in that era would have been uh, Mark Wynn, I think. We would go to Smiths and we would buy up like every magazine we thought looked cool, from like home and design magazines to women's magazines, uh, lifestyle stuff, sports stuff, cars stuff movie magazines and we would just scour through them cutting bits out that we thought were clever or looked nice or could be applied to games in an interesting way and that whole top 10 thing like was lifted really brutally from Grazia magazine and it had won awards for it as well like I think so like I'm pretty I'm you know pretty (laughs) shameless about it but I think we did enough to kind of convert it to like the problem we had right was like the internet was really approaching the dominance it is now in those days. So trying to write a traditional news section was a fool's errand. Mm. So we, so what we wanted to do was, you know, find stories that were like interesting, surprising, could be, could be illustrate, illustrated well with like we would use a mixture of things like infographics and photography and like just one render full page rather than like a bunch of screenshots. And I think like as long as that mag existed in its incarnation, it was probably the best bit of it and it was one of the most fun to do and it actually wasn't that hard to do right you would know at the start of the month you had to find 10 stories and this was kind of rough composition of them and Mm. you had like a bunch of formats you could pick from like a chocolate box but yeah it was i think that was the first time i really felt like mark mark had handed it off to me and that like this was my thing and i could each month we could build anything we wanted you know within the constraints of you know the games that were that that were coming out And, and we for sure tried to push beyond just doing the expected I remember like really upsetting Rockstar because we did a Manhunt 2 feature and rather than using any of the key art they supplied Mark had got we'd found these like medical illustrations of like bodies like part <laughs> kind of uh, dissected and we used those for like the all the page art background and Rockstar were fucking livid about it they were like why didn't you use our staff this is not our brand blah 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 but I, I think that feature was fantastic it, like it looked amazing and I think it captured uh, kind of you know, what that game was doing that's really cool like, I, all these years later I still remember like what your little big planet cover looked like for example and like yeah you had just so many such kind of like beautiful contemporary looking sort of fonts and stuff and um, yeah I really did yeah yeah that stuff a lot of that was uh, yeah Dylan Channon who is now um, still works with a bunch of ex future people I think Matthew probably worked with Dylan quite a bit on Nintendo stuff he's a he was a great guy I remember the, the cover that took years off my life was we did a kill zone I don't know two or three whatever it was we did this cover and on this one occasion we'd persuaded them to do this holographic finish to this this character um, and it was kind of like the, you know like the hologram stuff you get like on a 
a packet of toothpaste, you know, a good packet of toothpaste. It's that yeah. kind of like rainbow reflection. Mm-hmm. And the only place that did it was like this print shop up in Nottingham. And I think it cost like 15 grand or something, which is like a lot for, for a mag treatment. And we were so nervous about it. We drove up there, Mark and I, all the way to Nottingham just to see this cover kind of come off the, the printing presses. Right. And I, I remember looking at it and going, like, fuck me, you can hardly see it. Like, it's doing nothing. Like, in a certain light, maybe, there's some, there's some fucking rainbow. And we were, like, kind of... And you, the guy at the print shop was, like, he could see us kind of freaking out. And we were kind of holding it under different lights and stuff. We took it out to the car park to look at it. And, and, you know, ultimately, it, it did end up looking um, pretty cool. But I think we drove all the way back to Bath just in stony silence, thinking we had made this huge 15 grand error. Wow. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I don't, I don't miss that kind yeah. of side of it. All these things, Speaking definitely, yeah. Take a piece off you, you never get back. Sorry, Matthew. No, I was just going to say, you mentioned the Little Big Planet cover. Um, I'll always remember, was it There Will Be Blood as a Little Big Planet level? Oh, that sounds right, yeah, because I was obsessed with that film. We, I, I remember we, did, we ran a competition in the magazine for all the editors, all the writers, to make their own level, and the readers would choose the best. I remember Nathan Dighton, typically being so idle about it that his level was just like an enormous like beaker full of stickers that were just like you just cracked it and all the stickers fell out and me being like furious that he hadn't like um <laughs> he hadn't done the assignment properly but i also remember i think my level was called red hot salty balls or something i guess i was watching south park at the time and it was like a fairly like it was like a fairly trad take on like a nintendo style platforming which took me absolutely like an entire week to, to make pretty much and that game was incredible right I was thinking about I was thinking about the games from that era and like it was the kind of game where like the concept of it and the the proof of concept of it right that you could do something like this on console was so incredible but then when you actually came to down time to do it it was like this is too much like hard work I think only right. Leon on our team could really like muster the energy to properly make levels yeah yeah it was an amazing tool, though. Like the in the in the hands of other people, I do remember it feeling like it was pretty special thing that the PS3 had that other consoles didn't have. Um, but yeah, I, I too uh, tried one level and then like booted it back up, and it, I spent six hours on it, and it was just like eight circles on a screen, and I was like, "What the fuck am I doing here?" And then and also, gonna, yeah. you'd like move one cog, and the whole thing would fall apart as well in like a manner that you couldn't really get back. I know you could rewind it, but like it was just like. Yeah. I don't think I will. <laughs> so, um, you, you, a whole bunch of stuff happened um, after that PS3 launch. So there was a demo disc on the um, on the on the uh, on the magazine with the um, like a Blu-ray demo disc, and you ended up launching a content channel on PS3 as well. So, what was that like? Going doing this kind of like multimedia stuff from the mag? Like it was just a literal nightmare, I would say. <laughs> like it was just like really hard and stressful, and like it was one of those things where. There were people above me at Future who were like absolutely convinced, well, we need to be on the console, right? If we can be on the console, that's going to be this path to, you know, some enormous pot of gold. And I think like us never really believed it because the, the lead times were like longer than for a magazine, right? It was like six weeks or something. So whatever kind of like screenshots or videos you could corral together were going to inevitably be out of date. I mean, that thing kind of has spun off now to become, it became ultimately a YouTube channel, which some, some folk at Future kind of broke off and did still with Sony and is very successful now and like good luck to them but doing it it was effectively like an app kind of on on the PlayStation platform that you would download and yeah you would get like screenshots and videos and I think as with everything like the people making it were creative and cool and I think you know we did it we did our best to make it work 
but it was like a ball like it is how I would describe it mm. I, I don't remember it fondly <laughs> that's fair enough um, so what, which um, PS3 games were a big deal to you at the time or were you secretly playing 360 like every other games journalist in the late noughties <laughs> we've talked about Uncharted and I think that, that that for sure felt like it was a it felt like a kind of a game changer even if it wasn't the most played thing was I playing 360 I was certainly playing Halo like that's where I think like the Bungie obsession that you know lives on to this to this day was born I would like play Halo levels over and over again the same level just doing things slightly differently or, or, or focusing on using different weapons which ironically is kind of like for sure the kind of seeds of my addiction um, with Destiny later I, I remember Uncharted coming in actually and Uncharted having been being very unheralded when it came in Hmm. and it was just kind of this sense of where it's going to be this team Raider alike and it won't be that interesting and then actually kind of getting it in our hands and going fuck this is actually really really slick and blockbustery and clever and consistently fun and being kind of amazed that it felt like kind of Sony had undersold it to the world at that point I mean it feels odd in hindsight because you're like well Uncharted's always been one of the um, biggest things but it really wasn't when it arrived it was kind of this you know this other game. Yeah, I sort of told Matthew a very similar story on a previous episode, and you he was surprised you were surprised at by that, weren't you, Matthew? Like, um, that is that your like recollection that? of it as well? Then that it kind of wasn't because it was like the next game from like the Jack and Daxter guys, right? Yeah, my, my memory of it is that like that was the year that Lair and Heavenly Sword came out, and they were both like kind of kind of duds. Heavenly Sword was okay, but like they hadn't set the world alight and then right at the very end of the year was Uncharted and it, yeah I, I I had seen Lair, it Lair was terrible that was one of the ones where even OPM goes alright you're getting a 5 or whatever <laughs> there's no, there's no goss, gussying that one up <laughs> yeah but that, that, my memory very similar yeah like um, Uncharted just sneaks up and then by the time the second one rolls around it's like the biggest deal in the universe so it was um, yeah that's kind of how I remember it too because I lived with Leon who worked on OPM and yeah, him. I remember him playing in the flat and being like very impressed by the wet clothes. That was like the big thing. That his clothes were really like gooey when he got out of lakes and things. And thinking, didn't it oh, pretty yeah, that's much, pretty good. Didn't it pretty much coin the kind of like protagonist talking to themselves thing as well to kind of fill fill the dead air? Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like Drake always Drake's always talking to himself to kind it, of. Yeah, it feels like if if not created, definitely popularized. Like, yeah, there was yeah, a lot yeah. of it afterwards. Um, and obviously, like so far, like worlds apart from what we were playing on Wii, so our Wii experience was just so different to everyone else. It was kind of wild. Um, so, uh, Tim, at a certain point, you became uh, sort of future management and moved off of OPM. What were your post OPM days like? You describe yourself as a jack of all trades. Do you remember it that fondly? The good bit of it was getting to still work with Graham, and I felt creatively the redesign stuff was interesting and satisfying initially, at least. Um, I did enjoy doing the uh, Nintendo one, but it was also tied at the time with one of Future's periodic obsessions with like hubifying everything and trying to find like economies of scale, which invariably mean people like doing multiple versions of the same thing, which everyone fucking hates, and it's very difficult to persuade them otherwise. And I think probably rightly so. I was asked to essentially kind of like merge PSN and uh, XBW, which neither team wanted, and. I didn't especially want but was kind of like sold in as like well if we don't do it they're going to be closed earlier than they might be mm-hmm. so that wasn't the most like 
I felt like Graham and I gave it our best shot, but there was understandable resistance to it. it when you're in that kind of role, like I think my title at the time was like group editor or something, and I kind of had responsibilities for like everything, but also kind of nothing. So anything that kind of went well was like nothing to do with me, but anything that was fucked up was my problem. Right. <laughs> so it was very kind of like unsatisfying as a role. Like, um, and I think if it, if not for moving to PCG, I probably would have quit. Although that said, like I've been at Future for like. 20 years like I've stopped counting so like maybe that's a maybe that's a bold claim for me to be making <laughs> I, I, I I definitely enjoyed that Nintendo redesign process um I didn't at the start and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before like it felt like you know in my head PlayStation people were coming in and saying yeah. this isn't how you do it Mac and we were like oh you know because we'd been sort of loving our like weird sort of irreverent underdog status but actually I was incredibly proud of Nintendo Gamer and what came out of it I thought was was you know even though it only lasted about five issues was um, like a, you know, a really a really smart like great celebration of Nintendo and I, I almost want to tear up hearing you say that because I really did think I, I really gave it my best and, and I loved Nintendo actually and had always like played nin- Nintendo consoles actually I knew that you were a great team like you Charlotte I mean, fuck, you wouldn't have stayed at Feature as long as you did if you didn't really love it and care about it. And I knew you were mm. a great writer, so I didn't want to let you guys down. I think the, the PSMX BW one was just harder because it was just like... You, you still hear it now, now and then floating around, right? Feature's a very different company to what it was, but you still hear discussions about well, how can content be reused. And invariably, like, you end up, to my mind, having to have so many processes and kind of layers of management that actually any saving you might make is a fucking wash anyway. <laughs> um, and it's fundamentally against the reason people get into the job right as well. That makes sense. Um, I suppose, like, Tim, before we take a, a little break, um, you've already given us two excellent uh, stories um, to kind of chew on there. The um, uh, <laughs> Sayonara story I'm still laughing at in the background here. <laughs> have to go off mic sometimes. Pretty good. Uh, but I wanted to ask if there are any kind of trip stories from the PS2, PS3 days that kind of jump out to you. Anything you consider acceptable to discuss on air? It's really hard because there's a story I can't even remember if Matthew would have been there or not. I don't think he was. I think Garrett was there. Do you remember Garrett? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a story where I think I'm really not sure how much of it I can tell, but I thought well, I tell we you, killed... you can you can tell us, and if we deem it too spicy, we will we'll, we will edit it out. <laughs> I thought a PR person had been killed. Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'd been at a bar. Um, I'm not even going to say the company we were with, but we, the company we were with it was someone who worked in PR who no longer does, and that person had. I remember being like, I don't do drugs. I'm going to say that up front. But that person, to my understanding, had been trying to buy cocaine and had gone pretty wild. And they had suggested, when we'd gone back to our hotel in Santa Monica, they had suggested, like, let's all go swimming on the beach. And I'm like, geez, I'm pretty drunk. I'm pretty sure everyone is. But, like, I guess we will stick together. And Garrett had gone, like, hurting off onto the beach, right? Started, like, taking his shirt off. I'm sure it was Garrett. I apologise, Garrett, if it wasn't. And I'm like, shit, we need to get onto the beach so he doesn't drown or whatever. Because I do like maintain a degree of responsibility. (laughs) And the beach was very near our Santa Monica hotel. So we clambered over this like chain link fence. I'd been like the first over the freeway after after Garen. And as I look back, this PR person was like halfway over the fence and just dropped like a stone down to like the sidewalk below where the freeway was. And just, you know, when someone like falls and you know, they've just like, They've really landed hard. Right. And the person like wasn't moving at all. Another writer from PSM, Nathan Irvine, 
was the next one down and he just shouted Tim and there was a moment genuinely on the other side of the road like in the terrible thriller I was like do I just, should I just run should I just run away like this is such a bad situation but instead like I crossed back over the road by this point there were like cars like slowing down and honking because this person had like one leg in the road like um, and we started tending to them and they seemed unconscious I think I said something like we're fucked we're fucked the cops are going to come and um, at that moment the PR like sort of sprung up and I don't know if like, they had been like playing up to it a bit and it was the mention of you know John Q Law that kind of woke them up but anyway they kind of sat up they seemed like alright like a bit kind of woozy but not too much for worse the way I had a bit of a, like an egg in their hair from, from a bruise and we ended up like walking them up and down Santa Monica for like hours because we were worried about concussion and like putting them in bed because someone said oh you can die if you go to bed with a concussion so like alright great we're going to just we you know walked around to like almost fucking dawn with this person and <laughs> Kath Bryce was there as well and she was being very um, like you know sensible about it but it was literally, yeah, like a flash moment where I was like, well, someone's dead now on a press trip. Great. Like, this is, this is going to be really difficult to like phone, phone. Uh... I think I remember I did phone the mag because that's what you did back then. I phoned the mag as they were waking up and going, oh, we're having a terrible night over here in America. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think you could probably include that. It's probably fine. <laughs> I think it's fine. You left out enough details, so it's okay. Uh, I mean, I yeah, don't even know yeah. who it is. So yeah, if there's like a, the one-legged PR going around, that's it's them basically um, <laughs> by process of elimination. Oh well, there, there is actually like a follow-up to that. Is the next day the senior PR on the trip because we we eventually did leave Kath. I think Kath put this person to bed, and you know Irvine and I went off our separate ways. And in the morning, Nathan and I were, were having breakfast, and the senior PR turned up, mm. and he just said something like, "Good night, was it, lads?" And we were like, do you think it was a good night? And there was this kind of really like cagey back and forth. I was trying to work out like what he knew about what had happened. Uh. Oh, amazing. We'll take a quick break, then we'll come back and talk a bit more, a bit more about PCG. back to the podcast so in this section I'm going to talk a bit more about uh, tim's work on pc gamer and moving to america which is very exciting so um tim how did you end up on uh, pc gamer and um and making the big move because this seemed to happen around 2013 time but i got the impression it was in the works for a while what kind of led to you going on to the, the pc gaming side of things so i'd got to know charlie spate who was then running future in the u.s um mostly because we were both big Arsenal fans and we've been to a game together and he he really I think like got the gaming side of future and was really invested in he had been really invested in making games radar work in the US and I think it kind of then turned his attention to PC Gamer mm. and he had identified that the PC Gamer team which I think was probably under Graham at that point Graham Smith um, after Tim Edwards had it was really kind of the US and the UK sides were like consistently at loggerheads and didn't really communicate and would often kind of do things that made each other's lives difficult so he initially wanted someone just to kind of join those two teams up and make them all like one one kind of fully functional group um, and he wanted that person into the to be in the US fundamentally I think because Charlie knew and was correct to think is like that's where the audience is 
for you know America's a country of 330 million people versus Britain's you know 50 or 60 or whatever and he saw the potential for PCG over there and what attracted it to me was I think I kind of you know by that point it was very clear to me that online was going to ultimately be where it was at like you don't have to look too hard to see that and PCG already had like a really fantastic amount of talent on it like it had you know Phil Savage Tom Senior I forget like when you came in Samuel did you were you was I on PCG before you or after you? I think you were like. Or was it about the same time? It was about the same time. I think you were like group editor still, but you were you knew you were moving on to PCG. But it's quite right. A lot, a I lot remember of interviewing you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, you actually interviewed me for Matthew's um, job on O and M in 2012, and then uh, 2013. That was when you interviewed me for the PCG job. So uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that was uh, my I first I think he must have been one of those people, yeah, who I interviewed and liked. I can't remember why it didn't work out, but I guess because Matthew was good. Um, <laughs> so I hear. Yeah, probably. And, and, and kept you in my back pocket for something else, which is a um, good way I think, to go about I think hiring, I think. Everyone ended up in their right place, I think. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt bad because I think we had floated the idea of Graham doing it and then I kind of increasingly, the more I thought about it, was like, well, could this be me? Would you be open to that? And he was pretty enthusiastic about that. But he suggested like coming out to the US for like a, a period of time to kind of like meet the team and like get a feel for it and, and, and see how it would work. Because I was like, if I don't feel like I can actually like add anything to this mix, I'm not going to do it. Like I don't want to just be injected and not, not be any use and the initial plan weirdly was to live in New York and kind of split the time zones but that immediately became clear it would be dumb because you I think a bit like Matthew was saying we're like you know who are these PlayStation people coming in and telling me what to do you actually need to kind of prove yourself to people and mm. um, spend time with them so I did like six weeks in San Francisco which was in hindsight like absurd because I was on my own for six weeks. I was actually like, I was pretty lonely, right? Because the Americans, it's not like the kind of like pub culture and stuff. And I was just like in a new city in this kind of like rented place that Future put me in. And six weeks was just like much too long. Like my um, my other half, uh, Rachel, uh, who's managing editor on GR now, came out to visit, but that was just like kind of in the middle. And that was kind of really where me playing so much Hearthstone was born because I would just go back to this apartment and just sit playing cards for a fucking <laughs> till all hours of the night but yeah I don't know Like the, the weird thing is like I've always considered myself to be like pretty risk averse generally and yeah I kind of moved cross country for future once and then moved across the ocean for them as well and uprooted in both cases like my partner at the time I've always seen you as quite a bold confident person you know, when you went over to do that stuff, I was like, oh, yeah, that tracks. I think, do you know what? The opportunity just seemed like I didn't have kids and I didn't want kids. And it felt like too too good an opportunity to pass up. The, the lure really was like PC Gamer more than America. Like, right. Truthfully. It, PC Gamer, like future in so many ways for a long time, like I think Sammy will probably agree with this, like took a long time to wake up to the opportunity they had that they had created. Right. It was like one of the few brands future had unlike the official mags where it was a market leader that was its own right it had you know created and coined it and this was a this was a brand which I think under Tim Edwards he had like had to persuade Future to give it a website right something that's based about the personal computers right how can it not have a website absolutely ridiculous (laughs) right but it had always kind of seemed like I mean you'll remember it um, Matt I'm sure like there was always this kind of talk of like oh is the PC dying is the PC dying and Mm -hmm. it was like 
you know, you look at it now and it's never been in Ruder House. Mm. Um, but you could feel at that time I joined that like the mood music around it had changed and people really understood like this thing, you know, between like modding and uh, the potency of online games and the coming of esports, even though like, we never really kind of cracked that nut. Like it <laughs> remains like this incredibly fertile thing to be involved with. Like there's yeah. like infinite stuff you can write about it and it like it's the antithesis of those Nintendo days, right? You're you're not beholden to one company occasionally pumping out a game. There's like, you know, I can't remember how many things are put on Steam each year, but it's like a disgusting amount, right? Yeah. It was around that time, the end of that console generation as well. That that generation had really slowed down. Um yeah. and like it, it petered out quite quite badly before the PS4 and the Xbox One launched. And so PC, meanwhile, was getting stuff that wasn't on those platforms at, at quite a, a, an alarming rate. And so my attention turned to PC. And I think that you, to, to your point about, like, yeah, these two teams who weren't necessarily gelling, you saw the potential of making that work if they, those teams were all pointed at the same North Star, basically. Um, so that was kind of my memory of it. When you met them individually as well, like, you realised there was, you know, talent on both sides of the pond. Like, the guys over in the US, like, Evan was there, Tyler was there, like, fabulous writers both, really smart guys, really wanted the best for it. And the problems were really problems that either Future created or were kind of based on natural communication issues that exist when you try and work across the pond. Mm. But I felt like, for sure, I mean, like, I mean, Sam, when you joined... PCG, you. I felt like at heart you were probably more of a console person, and I certainly was. Right, I had I had played on PC growing up, and yeah, you know, I remember playing like you know Quake and stuff or whatever. But I was in in my heart more of a console person, and I was really concerned with like, will they just consider me a fraud, or will the fact I've done enough editorial stuff kind of you know justify me being there? And I think you know people were right to be suspicious at first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I think about like my time on OPM and my time in PCG is like being these two like big love affairs, honestly. And I've been like unbelievably lucky to like the best bit of the job. And like this is a podcast about um, life in the media, right? The best bit, I'm sure you'll both agree, is like the feeling of being on a great team as it as it kind of hits its stride and everyone kind of gets each other and the humor's there. And mm. you know, I don't want to. I'm not going to say you any bullshit about like you know you're like a family or whatever because ultimately like don't trust any company you work for you shouldn't um, <laughs> but there's something about like being on a mag or a website and being in you, you know that expression like when you're in you know, you're, you're like imperial phase right when you can't really doing any, anything wrong like everything's just kind of operating at its maximum ability mm. sometimes on a mag you would go you do you do an you drop an issue right and it would be like that issue couldn't have been any better. Like, of course it could have been better if you were given infinite time, but given the constraints we had, like money, members of staff, what's in the release schedule, right? Given all those constraints, it could not have been any better, right? We Mm. nailed it. And then normally the issue after that, you'd kind of all take your foot off the pedal and it would be like a a six out of 10. But um, (laughs) that was like the best bit of, uh, I think being on Max, like when you knew you would really kind of like drop the bomb like that and really kind of operated at peak. The other mm-hmm. thing I wanted to say to you and see if you two felt the same is like I think when you're on magazines like you have an absolute shelf life I think there are only so many issues you can put out and I know there are exceptions to the rule and people who go on and on and I don't know if Tony's been on but I mean Tony's had breaks and come back but mm-hmm. I feel like both with me and you Sam like you reach a point where like you just I can't make any more mags not because you didn't love mags anymore didn't believe in them but like it takes something from you that process I think like <laughs> yeah. the the relentlessness of it and it's not to say that making 
the internet isn't relentless, but it's relentless in a different way. I think what's always um, been similar about you and me, Tim, and I realised this like after I left PCG, is that like we're both way too caught up in our work and over-invested in it. And <laughs> we both probably derive too much pleasure from it when it's going well and then take it far too personally when it's going badly. I've been able to diagnose that in myself and I feel like you're maybe <laughs> kind of similar. I don't know if you agree with that. But um, but do you feel like you fixed it in yourself? A, a little bit. And part of this podcast is like, it's something that's not work that I pour a bunch of time and energy into. And so mm. there's a bit of pride of something you own that's not related to work. But no, I don't think I've really fixed it because I just launched a game and got incredibly personally invested in how it went. So, uh, yeah, do you do you identify that yourself, Tim, or am I kind of off off the grid there? The funny thing is, although like because Stanton said this to me the other day, because you're not a writer anymore, then I'm like, yeah, that's probably fair, even though it hurt. And um, <laughs> the thing is, I never felt the sa- I never felt more satisfaction than when I'd written something I felt was good mm. and just put it to bed. And I think it's like a unique thing. But I never found like writing got easier for me. I always found it hard. And not in the sense I didn't believe I could do it. I just like physically found it hard, like sitting down in front of a blank page and then trying to... Mm. I, when I was reviewing something or writing a feature, I would basically like pro- procrastinate to the point where I felt like my head was almost going to burst with the thoughts. And, my <laughs> head, and the feature would be half written in my head and then the act of writing would be just kind of putting it down. But I've always felt like a sense of dread and fear about especially writing anything of any length. It's one of the reasons I think I like news so much and mostly consider myself a news guy is because I love the kind of short formness of and the kind of rip and runness of it. Right. I think the difference between me and you is like I know when something's good enough, you know what I mean? Like I can be satisfied with good enough. And I think you're haunted more by the idea of it should be better. <laughs> and the other thing I would say about working with you, which I enjoyed thoroughly and miss but I've never worked with someone who more consistently thought they were about to be fired for like no for no reason you know what I mean yeah like I always felt like whenever I was sent you a message I would have to like preface it with don't worry you're not going to be fired yeah. and like you never did anything came close to getting you fired so the, the, the reasons you kind of worried about it would always be very um I mean, to me like almost cryptic like I'll be like what the thing is once you've seen what you can do and not get fired you appreciate how far you are from being fired at all times, I felt. We didn't decide whether to talk about this or not, but I literally dragged official PlayStation magazine onto the cover of the mail on Sunday and didn't get fired. Right, right. And I think the only thing that stopped me from getting fired was that probably someone at Sony would have had to be fired if I got fired. Right. Um, (laughs) Do you want me to talk about it? If if you want to, like, there's no pressure from us, but it, it is legit interesting. I think it's fine. I mean, it's a historic thing that happened. Again, like I'll leave any names out of it, but like <laughs> it, it, in the it was in the front section of the magazine, the one we talked about earlier, the Grazia kind of style top ten. It had come to my attention from a source at Sony that Sony had, and we're, like I said, we were always looking for like cool, weird shit that people hadn't seen that was surprising, kind of culturey type stuff. And it came to my attention that for the God of War two launch party in Greece, the person at Sony said, "Have you heard about this?" And I was like, "No." It's like, yeah, they did this kind of wild party and there were like topless waitresses and they kind of, this goat got, uh, there was this kind of dead goat that got like kind of faux sacrifice and then there was a competition to like eat from this bowl of guts, although they weren't really guts, it was like, I don't know, like kebab meat or whatever. You had to kind of eat this, you know, slightly dodgy looking bowl of meat and <laughs> the winner who, I can't remember the exact mechanics, someone would, wanna, would win a, a PS3 with... God of War 2 I want to say 
Yeah. I may, may be wrong. And I was like, holy shit, are there like pictures of this event? And the person was like, yeah, yeah, do you want them? And I was like, well, that could be like, that's a pretty wild news story. I mean, even now me saying it out loud, it's ridiculous. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> um, so we turned it into a double spread and the headline was something like Sony's Greek orgy. I mean, I don't know what we were thinking. Um, I do remember that Mark Quinn, who was the art editor at the time, and Mark was Mark's vibe was always like, he was one of the most talented people I ever worked with, but he kind of came on like a kind of like haunted jazz trombonist who was really into heroin. Like he had that, like he was the only one in the office who wore like a shirt which was open and then like black slacks, and he just looked ill, but very dry and very funny. And he was like, we were like laying this picture out, which sure enough, this you know Greek guy with kind of like wearing um, animal skin and like with a, like this goat corpse. Which I think had been slaughtered previously, like by a halal butcher or whatever. And Mark was going, like, yeah, we we need to turn the we need to turn the blood up, like the red in the blood, to really make it pop off the page. I was going, yeah, Mark, you're right. That's definitely what we need to do. <laughs> and I was like incredibly tired at the time, and for some reason, like no one stopped me, probably because they thought I would like I thought this was the greatest wheeze ever. Anyway, <laughs> we sent it to print. I went off to the All Tomorrow's Party Music Festival with my ex boss, Mike Goldsmith watched a bunch of indie bands and then on a Sunday morning I got a call from someone pretty senior at Sony who said very sternly you need to go to the newsagent and I was like what he goes just go to the newsagent and look at the mail on Sunday and they had run a cover they had run a front page that just had the word slaughtered with the picture from the magazine blown up and it was like Sony's sixth stunt or something like this wow can you imagine like the level of panic like I think I probably nearly threw up in the newsagent. It was like a, it was like eight a.m. on a Sunday morning at a music festival. We were hungover. I, I went and spoke to Mike. And I think I just sat in my car for a while in the car park, probably like just going, "Well, that's it. I'm done." I phoned my dad, and my dad said, "You know what you need to do?" And I went, "No, Dad, tell me." And he goes, "Go in on Monday and ask for a pay rise." And I was like. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. He goes, they've never had publicity like this. This is the best thing they've ever had. And I, got, I said, I, I hear what you're saying, but that is not how this is going to play out. <laughs> so I drove, technically I had the Monday off, but I just drove back to the office. James Binns was like group publisher at the time. Drove back to the office, sat in, sat in like silence. No one on the, like almost on the mag team. No one was talking to me. I think Rachel just went, do you want a cup of tea? And I was like, yeah, please. I can't remember how exactly how it played out. We had to like, the magazine was like effectively recalled and those pages cut out. Mm. We had to write an apology. Sony like disavowed all knowledge of it and sort of said that it had been overplayed, which maybe it was. I mean, like, tr- I mean, truthfully, like I hadn't been, you know, we hadn't been at that party. So is mm. it the best journalism? Probably not. But I mean, the party happened. Like, let's be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that wasn't my idea. I remember it because at the time, randomly, We've been reviewing this video game based on some, like, Japanese anime thing. Um, And when we imported a copy of it, it came with a remote holder in the shape of a sheep's head. And (laughs) I I remember being like, oh, well, this is going to be classic. You know, there's all this stuff kicking (laughs) off about this goat sacrifice. And we've got this sheep's head. So I just kept putting in references to the sheep's head. And then having, it must have been Nick Ellis at the time, just removing all of them constantly. (laughs) It was like a a sort of game of cat and mouse where I was desperate to make some cheeky little joke about this situation. And he was just like, no, 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 over and over again. I mean, I'd never seen a time for our peers to like pontificate. I mean, it must have been been great if you're on a row of to see us taking that size of L right like, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I think the only reason I didn't get whacked is that, like, you know, ultimately the pictures had come from Sony and the event had happened. So, like, mm. you know, and, and they, to be fair, didn't want to, I think, didn't want to haul their person over the calls as well. Over the calls as well. Well, uh, yeah, that was, um, in hindsight, like, in hindsight, like, it's one of my kind of, like, fonder anecdotes to tell. George Walter, who I used to work with, piece of shit, would keep the paper on his desk at all times. So whenever I walked <laughs> over to him, I would see it. <laughs> Wow, that is uh, yeah next level psychological warfare. That um, yeah uh, yeah it's sort of like yeah good for the um, the Mail on Sunday thinking they had the uh, moral high ground on anything ever. Um, frankly, good for them. But well, like, uh, the, yeah. the reason it ended up on the cover, I was told, um, was that they had had a story about I think it was um, the boss of an oil company had been seeing um, a male sex worker, and they had this as a scandal, and that boss had got like a super injunction at the last minute which meant they had to find something else to put on the cover and they were kind of I mean it would have been in the paper anyway right let's be clear but like they kind of like just threw it threw it on as the next best thing so that kind of was a piece of fairly bad luck for me yeah okay yeah probably below like a a free DVD of like you know uh, (laughs) when Harry met Sally or something like that Um, yeah good stuff Um, yeah so uh, a PCG like um I think that I was, I was curious to know what you made of the way games media changed over the years, uh, Tim. Because um, you say, you know, you, you say that thing about Rich saying that you're not a, a writer now, but compared to like all other management I, I worked with in an editorial, you were very like hands on with the editorial side of things in a way that you were invested in the individual stories we were covering and making sure we were chasing certain things. And like, it feels like those editorial instincts probably existed throughout your entire career from print to online. But I was wondering what you made of the way that like media changed and from, from when you started in uh, the early noughties um, up until now. I'm still the same for sure. Like I'm still pretty hands-on. I'll still be like poking around at headlines. I'll still edit stories. I'll still occasionally write when it's kind of my beats. Um, I mean, look, the biggest seismic changes, I think, you know, aside from kind of the shift from print to online, probably has been and much to my chagrin the advent of twitter and that being like it's both like such a good source when it comes to stories and news and being able to tap into like communities and people on development teams and stuff but also like i despise like the games media's obsession with the kind of navel gazing side of it and the cliqueiness of it Mm. and i really as you will probably remember dislike the fixation with kind of the discourse on there when i think actually it is very much a bubble and the impact it has in terms of certainly traffic and stuff is minuscule versus Facebook for example which you know is a trash fire in its own way but just actually has a much bigger impact on who's coming to your site but Twitter Twitter clearly has like changed games media and continues to do so um, Gamergate which I really don't want to talk about I think has had like seismic effects beyond beyond games media all the way up to kind of you know who gets elected in the US and I look back on my time during that and kind of still um, to a degree haunted by could we, should we have done more? Probably yes. But also I saw a lot of people do a lot that had no effect at all. And I think I, I saw like the entirety of mainstream media trying to hold back the same forces and were washed away by it effectively. So I wonder whether that was just a storm that was coming one way or another. Yeah. I, I, do you know what I was going to say as well? Like I think like one of the biggest changes for positive is that we I think generally as a group care much less about exclusivity like it just doesn't matter so much anymore and I think that's been like I think that was the worst thing of the mags era the the need to kind of constantly get these kind of review covers and stuff which were you know 
they put like such a pressure on the reviewer and the editor and the, the you know just the whole organization i think to keep securing these things and i think we just don't care about that stuff anymore pretty much because reviews aren't necessarily the most important currency anymore um mm-hmm. I remember feeling quite liberated hearing Tim Ingham say that on CBG he was like he didn't give a shit about going on embargo I mean don't tell this to the rest of the team but he really didn't care about embargoes and preferred to go a couple of days later when the kind of the melee of everyone releasing a version of the same thing on at the same exact moment of the clock had died down he'd rather put his thing out like 24 hours later get mm-hmm. the attention that way but I think like that that scramble for covers the throat cutting of that was unhealthy and I'm glad like we're not involved in at all like we, we pick the game we're most interested in now and try and get it and if we can't get that we get the next best thing and then keep going but Is there now not a scramble for everything in the age of like you know search engine optimization and whatnot? Yeah I mean SEO sure that's a different battle but that's much more like a craft I think that you can kind mm. of just learn and, learn and be good at across the whole piece I mean it's definitely like it's definitely hard in a different way and you ignore you would ignore it at your complete peril Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not kind of like you're not kind of like trying to cut deals where like oh give us this announcement right and don't let them have it which was very much the mm. the way of the world um, back on mags and I think going back to PCG and like what I was saying earlier about how much there's effectively infinity you can write about at any one given point in time so the job becomes like how creative are you at finding an angle that's going to interest people or excite people can you go out into the world and find a story that is being undercovered or not discovered at all yet that, that that's going to like thrill people and that's you know mm. we have like some really fabulous people on the team and you know and who've come and gone during my time folks like Steve Messner Andy Chalk the news machine we've got um, in fact I don't, I'm going to stop naming people because that feels like then you kind of by omission leave people out but yeah I think some of our biggest stories are just us finding a really cool funny weird thing and writing a killer headline and telling people something they didn't know about and to me in some ways that actually is like a DNA through line back to what you were talking about Matthew of like the really creative days in the mag when you would be like making each other laugh and just inventing Mm. cool stuff rather than kind of being Evan on my team really pushes us you know as well like away from like we don't have to preview all the games we don't have to write all the new stories like actually that's kind of uh, has very diminishing returns mm. and what what works is having a voice and finding the cool shit in amongst you know this kind of absolute maelstrom of new things something mm. I, I thought you and Evan were really ahead of the curve on was the idea that like um, big online games were like self-perpetuating news industries in themselves yeah um, and like uh, Stephen was perfect at that because he was really good at tapping into stories around like you know, uh, Final Fantasy, um, Elder Scrolls Eve. Among, yeah, Eve, exactly, yeah. Um, all manner of online games. But then, like, it very much became a thing where, like, certain people would own certain games, like when we had um, Joe Donnelly writing about GTA Online or whatever, and, like, I know you've got yep. Nat, Nat Clayton writing about Apex these days, for example. But, like, um, yeah, that sort of thing. You, you felt ahead of the curve on that. Like, you saw that, you saw that coming. And that seems to be where a lot of those original stories come from, right? It's something we took from sports, really, which is like beat reporting, which is like you'd have a person who basically owns a sports team as a beat and like is expected to like get to know the general manager, have ins with the agents. And, you know, like I don't want to give away too many kind of secrets, but like <laughs> that's, that's kind of how we organize ourselves now. And you can't have a beat that just is like 
the indie game inside right that can't be your beat right because it's not broad enough and it's not got like enough like sort of staying power but your beat can be Skyrim right because it turns out people will read about Skyrim apparently till the heat death of the universe and Bethesda will keep you know releasing new versions of it but I think actually that's been like for me anyway it's liberating right because and again going back to the Twitter thing is like you can really embed yourself in a scene right you need to follow the right YouTube channels you need to follow all the devs you need to you know know what the what Reddit cares about um, in following Reddit's the easiest thing in the world but like you can really like build up like a portfolio of contacts in a way that is like proper report I mean, it is proper reporting it's not like proper reporting mm. and I love doing that like I love kind of being immersed in a particular scene sure um, so is there anything else you want to say about how PCG is going these days like I'm kind of amazed it kept growing and growing you've got this massive team full of talented writers uh, the PC gaming show you work on like um, I guess like h- how is it these days for you I think it's good You, I mean I would say you should ask the team because I'm sure they would uh, be very candid I mean like the pandemic I think was you know it's the most facile thing to say ever but was very hard of course for everyone we were weirdly quite well set up for it insofar as the whole US team was, was remote already because Future had shut, shut the San Francisco office earlier there was only me and one other writer in New York otherwise everyone was like scattered across Canada, SF um, you know various other places so we, we were kind of already working in that way um, a little bit harder for the, the UK folks to kind of um, probably wrap their heads around but I think have done a great job too the team keeps growing because really I think like there's still so much headroom there actually I think you could probably put I mean we're close to 20 people now you could put another 20 on it easily and, and not run out, run out of stuff to write about or things to do so I tend to try and whenever we have like you have these kind of like a couple of times a year these kind of business reviews I always try and like squeeze another person or two in there because there is more to be done like we're, we're expanded in guides we're expanded in hardware I want to see us expand more in video that kind of is like a that's been another, uh, you know, tough nut to crack for a, a lot of people. I think we, you know we're behind the curve there. That's why it continues to be like exciting and fun because I don't think we're anywhere near where it could ultimately be. And I think we're lucky in the sense that like the the, the people who I've had managing me, Matthew Pierce now, like Aaron before, generally like really understand um, the potential of PCG. I think it was a month ago we were the biggest website of future like mm. even beating out like the, the big tech sites and stuff yeah. um, I mean we were we were living off we were drunk on Elden Ring and Wordle traffic admittedly <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it, it was a it was a hell of a month <laughs> that's awesome um, so I wanted to ask a bit about your gaming habits too because since I've known you you've just played Destiny and Hearthstone and like I've never really known you play you briefly played Hitman 3 as I understand it um, but like you tend to play games that are sort of lifestyle choices so um, I wanted to ask a bit about that, but also, what did you play before those games existed, and how 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 did they kind of like change your habits of playing games, sort of like permanently? I was like everyone else at Future. I would say I was like a, I would describe it as like an omnivore. Like I would like just play everything and move on. Like I mean, like I was one of those one of those guys at Future who played a lot of pairs for sure. But um, you know, I I played everything. I played shooters and RPGs and um, platformers. Like I said, I owned every machine. It's on the the because you're right to identify like I now I mean like Destiny I'm like multiple thousands of hours in as logged by Steam and that's not counting the time I spent on Battle.net with it right, right yeah. it's like so I don't play games less I just play less games do you know you know and I, yeah. I think 
at times I feel like a kind of guilt about that but I, I feel like I'm plugged in enough to the other games and their scenes that I still know what's happening and what the news should be but you're right that I have these two comfort I mean Hearthstone is a very loveless relationship these days but Destiny <laughs> is like it's one of the great games of my life it, I mean it is probably the great game of my life and it's become like a social thing where I have like two separate groups of friends that I play with regularly who I've never met couldn't pick out of a police lineup, but <laughs> consider friends play with them every week and I think because it's been around for so long and because it's been through such like spasmodic periods where it kind of had huge problems with it right Destiny 2 at launch made some design decisions I would have said were like so unforgivable they would have killed most games right that, that really kind of were damaging to it that it would take them then because these games are super tankers like a year or more to recover from and to course correct mm. but Bungie I think like their art team is ridiculous they, they, they tap into something that I've I think with art and media sometimes you find things that you almost didn't know you wanted till you come across it mm. when I was a kid there was a book called Space Wreck which was a, an art book and it was all of paintings of like crashed spaceships or spaceships that were kind of like marooned in space and damaged mm. and the whole Destiny ethic, uh, aesthetic has that kind of like ruined future vibe and I remember saying to one of their art guys have, have you ever seen it one of them was like yeah we've seen that book like it's definitely like a, a thing um, so every I I love being in the worlds they make and have done since Halo. Their combat sandbox is, to my mind, like peerless. The problem is I go to play other shooters or games with even just guns in and they just don't feel good to me. Like Destiny remains like popping bubble wrap. Like as soon as I do it, I just want to do more of it. Mm. And I asked, I remember saying to like Luke Smith, the director, like what is the secret sauce? Why does it feel so good? And he said... He said that one of the uh, programmers or, or design leads had said, when you shoot someone in the head in Destiny, it's like shooting a, three, a free throw in basketball and it like just hitting the net. He says, it doesn't matter how many times you do it, we aim for like the satisfaction to be the same on shot one and shot one million. Mm. And they, they nail that. I find like when I don't play it, I find this kind of almost like withdrawal feeling. I just want to be in that world like, swinging a shotgun or a kind of pulse rifle around and, and <laughs> I think in some ways even though it's like you know a big deal still right people it's still a lot of people play it Sony just paid a lot of money for it I think fundamentally because they wanted to buy in that, that uh, games as a service experience I think people actually don't give it the credit it's due like it is it's not the last of those games standing because there's still Warframe but it's seen off every competitor in that space really and grown mm. and that's not to be done lightly I don't think and I remember as a kid even as well thinking like because it, it was all you know MMORPGs have existed forever and people kind of joke about whether it really even is one but I remember as a kid even thinking like what would a game be like where you logged in every time it was different or every or it was kind of this shared experience and like even though like for long periods it never really delivered on that promise mm. it's starting to and it has done in some ways. Like its narrative stuff is really interesting now. It plays as a soap opera. Like mm. each week you will get like a different, like literally with twist endings and stuff and like characters doing heel turns. And even though they're kind of, they're, they're delivered in a bunch of different ways. Like sometimes there's cutscene, but also sometimes there's like overseen, overheard conversation. And it's doing all sorts of things like that that are kind of like passing unremarked unless you are in that world. And I think a lot of people are just like, well, it's that shooter that's got multiplayer and like it does raids and stuff. And yeah. I mean, you've played it, Sam, right? There's no 
nothing really, I don't think. Can you think of anything that's truly like it? No, and I think the the point you make about how it's seen off lots of different competitors is very true. And like uh, it weathers um, the sort of rise and fall because the heights are just so, so good, I would say. Like, Like you say, the design of the raids, how guns feel, how things look. Yeah, I mean, I, I most I played a lo- tons of it in 2020, and then um, haven't gone back to it since then. But I basically did everything before they started vaulting stuff. But I got almost every gun. Really loved it, um, and definitely had. You know, we cleared off all of the different um, raids that are being vaulted to. So I've done all of those. Because um, you, you raid with like um, Chris Thurston once at PCG's parish, and I think Thurston said something. I think Thurston said this line, and I stole it from him. I think he said that. Trying to do a raid is like trying to do synchronized swimming while under small arms fire, <laughs> and like that's such a like a perfect Chris line. But and, and again, I've tr- I tried to get some other like FPS enjoyers on the team to like go in because I don't think for people. I mean, PC gaming, P- the PC platform is like ultimately it's the home of the FPS, right? I think that would be fair to say. Like mm. Doom comes from PC, like it, it gave it to the world, it gave Counter Strike to the world. But like, there's nothing like it in other FPSs, to my mind, of like six people both having to like mechanically coordinate timing and all sorts of like esoteric kind of puzzly stuff while being fucking shot at. Like, it's it's incredible. Like, you have we we did this challenge in the raid this this week where it's all to get this cosmetic title. And we played it. You had to play it on the hardest version. And one of the encounters, you have to kind of complete three different incredibly like combat heavy rooms while carrying these different special items that have to be kind of dunked and deposited and fired and whatever else while constantly calling out symbols from a sheet of about you know 26 symbols correctly <laughs> like it's insane and some people are very like anxious and they don't want to call anything out they don't want to be responsible for the thing necessarily failing and we did this for I think we started at 7pm and we finished at half past one at night Oh just that, just on that one encounter right doing it over and over again and I was like I'm fucking 45 am I enjoying this like I feel horrendous <laughs> like I've my body is collapsing as we're doing this <laughs> tempers are fraying but the satisfaction when we got it done I don't want to be <laughs> was it worth it I still probably can't say but um, but there's nothing like that I, I don't think in, in games and I think it's sort of more for me that I don't play other stuff but I'm I'm quite busy. I try and dip into things still. I'm going to play actually the game you launched recently, Sam, because I'm a big 40k head. That's not me just saying it. I really am. I'm going to play it on Steam Deck. Mm-hmm. The Witcher was the last. The Witcher 3, I I drained every bit of DLC from it. I had every single piece of, um, you know, that rare armor you could get that would make you look like um, Gary Oldman <laughs> and Dracula and stuff. <laughs> um, uh, one thing, I, I, Sam, I have one bone pick to pick with you, though. Oh, go on. Um, do you remember the E3 where we got shown Cyberpunk? Yeah. And I said to you, that game is in big trouble. It's not going to be good to play. Yeah, I do. And remember you were that. like, and you were like, no, that was a great demo. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Um, you were always a lot like wary of this kind of like stuff that I was. I think maybe it's that's like an experience thing, but um, <laughs> yeah, I I think that was like the second demo they did where it looked more like a real game than the first one did. Um, but yeah, I do remember that. So that's that's fair to call me out on that, Tim. Um, here's here's a question for you two as men of games. Do you think Starfield is going to come out this year? And I've got like no inside knowledge on this, by the way. So this is not me like uh, trying to be clever. Uh, I don't think so. No, I think that's like a next year thing. It's in the back of my mind as I think about PR stuff myself. Like, <laughs> when will that move, and what will that move look like? Huh. You know. So uh, yeah, I don't think so. What about you, Matthew? 
Yeah, well, I think it is just on the grounds that their sort of marketing campaign is so full steam ahead. Like, you know, they're doing quite regular little documentaries and updates and video blogs. I think it'd be weird if that culminated with it not coming out when they said it would. But no one's really seen it, though, right? No, no. I mean, that's that's the strange thing about these videos. There's, there's, there's like, shitloads of stuff about it, but, like, not a second of the game. Um, it's just Todd Howard saying it's going to be amazing, or, like, the composer saying, wait until you hear the music. <laughs> I know that like with the last two fallouts they did kind of have like super short run-ups which is I guess a thing that stands in its favour that it might come out that they kind of went alright it's here in a month and it was here in a month mm. but it just seems so weird to me with a game like purportedly of its kind of hoped for size and impact maybe they just know it's janky is the truth well it's tough <laughs> as well because they want that release date right it's just such a, a nice date to hit so right. um, yeah I think that's that's significant. Um, but then, like, you know, Fallout 76 was kind of a bumpy launch, so they might have learned some lessons from that as well. That's why I think it's plausible it might move. But E3, like the Microsoft conference, this will be the big marquee thing, won't it? So, um, yeah, I guess yeah. we'll uh, I guess we'll see. Um, I was curious, Tim, like, um, just on the, the Destiny tip, A, do you miss uh, Callus? Because I, I talked about him in a previous episode, like how good that raid was. Um, part of the the fun of that um, the Leviathan raid actually was that the iconography was so gaudy and how much we kind of enjoyed the sort of silliness of it. And the other thing was that um, Witch Queen. Do you think that's a good time to like jump in if you're a new player? Uh, yeah, I think it's a good time. I think it, they they've kind of. Um, I mean, look, if you're brand new, I've played through the new player experience just to see what it was like, and I know a lot of people are pretty critical of it, but I think that. It's as, certainly whenever there's the big annual expansion, that's as good as time as any to get in. Um, so it would be fine. Callus is a great character because he's funny um, as a villain, mm. but not in a way that's cheesy. And I know you said you dipped out for a bit, but it's heavily suggested he's coming back quite soon. Mm. Um, so I is think he... he's probably going to get the send off he wanted. He's like a big fat dude who's got like a, you shoot an like army a, of robots. You shoot his glass of wine or something, right? Yeah, and it makes a really, really satisfying ding. That's Bungie all over. Like, the ding when you shoot his goblet is just like, chef's kiss. Um, but Callus is really cool. The raid boss they did for the most recent raid as well was like one they did. Who, If you remember Callus, he just like stood there and took it like a lot of their bosses have done. Whereas the new one marches around an arena, does spinning kicks, all sorts of shit. He's, he's very kind of... Um, classic boss design to the point where like having a boss that moved at all seemed to throw our team into complete connections like well this isn't this isn't allowed like what's going on here um the people who work on the raids there are like absolute alchemists i remember like i remember interviewing joe blackburn who's now like the game lead who had done the last wish raid which is one which ends with like an enormous dragon that you like it's called it's called a wish dragon that you kind of they do this great they bungee great at doing drops where they kind of drop you from the sky and you see something as you're falling and you fall down the length of this dragon and see it and the tragedy was that with that encounter it was like multi-part you would have these rooms where you kind of had to stun the dragon and then eventually you'd end up in a arena where you'd have to shoot all of you would have to snipe a specific eye of the dragon he had like six eyes in in kind of coordinated timing but the destiny community being what they are which is a bunch of um Feckless, always take the easiest path. It's like an, Destiny, by the way, is the whole thing is like a weird thought experiment. 
uh, into social <laughs> stuff. I'm sure some amazing papers are going to be written about it. But anyway, found a way to like cheese the boss, like they can cheese every boss, where you can essentially like kill this enormous dragon just by like hitting it in the toenail with certain combination of abilities and items. <laughs> and after that, like no one played that boss properly ever again. And these poor people had like made this incredible encounter that we would just find a way to circumvent, which is which is the whole history of bosses in that game, unfortunately. Yeah, is that the raid that's got the wall of symbols? that um yeah yeah that yeah we fucking uh, that i remember being the hardest part of that raid for some reason i don't remember why but like um, so the new the new raid has got like double the amount of symbols um, but helpfully this time they actually provide a key for what they're called in the game because the problem with the last wish was everyone invented their own names for the symbols so if you didn't <laughs> yeah. play with the same people you were screwed and we would have names like oh it's the triple boob from total recall that would be that would be the call out for one of the symbols right <laughs> Um, so yeah, not not ideal when you're trying to communicate stuff in the moment. Yeah, it's like how there would be like a, a dog symbol in one of the raids and someone might call it wolf or someone might call it hound or something. And it's like, then we'd all lose our shit when they said like the most esoteric version of that, that word could be. And uh, exactly. yeah, very familiar. Um, well, great stuff, Tim. Like I, was, I don't know if there's anything else you kind of wanted to mention um, as we wrap up here, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, only to say that, yeah, I was glad to be asked on and I miss you both. Oh, very kind, Tim. Well, you know, maybe we'll have you on again down the line, but we're really grateful for you giving a few hours of your Sunday up. It's uh, much appreciated. Of course. Look after yourselves, boys. Awesome. Well, um, you can catch Tim, Timothy D. Clark on Twitter. Is that right? Yep. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. Matthew, where are you on Twitter? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you very much for listening uh, and goodbye. Bye-bye.